good. Welcome, everybody. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, yeah, very, ni very nice to see you all. So, yeah, welcome to the seventh meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. <laughs> it's my great pleasure to introduce today Dr. Dawn Wilson. Dr. Wilson is at the University of Hull and works primarily in aesthetics and also on the early and late Wittgenstein. She's thus interested in language, thought and images, particularly in art and aesthetics and the philosophy of photography, and she's published widely in these areas. She is currently co-writing the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on photography and also writing a book entitled Aesthetics and Photography for Bloomsbury. Dr. Wilson's paper this evening relates to these issues as, and is entitled Reflecting, Registering, Recording and Representing from Light Image to Photographic Picture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wilson. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed to the Aristotelian Society for inviting me. And thank you to everybody who's attending. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion with you afterwards. I'm going to share my screen. There we go. Okay, so photography is highly valued because it can produce visual records of features of photographed scenes through a causal recording process. It uh, is valued for accuracy, reliability, objectivity, credibility, largely in virtue of that idea. Tradition has it that the photographic process allows the world to imprint itself, yielding its own reproduction. This is associated with the notion that photography is a mind-independent recording medium. I'll call this idea that photography is fundamentally a recording medium, and it's the view that I wish to challenge in this paper. I will instead argue that photography is only functionally a recording medium. Photographs can be records of photographed scenes and fulfill this function in an exemplary way, but it is not necessary that a photograph be a record of a photograph scene. On the fundamental view, every photograph must be a record just insofar as it is a photograph. On the functional view, photography is well suited to produce records if specific contingent conditions are met, but a photograph can still be a photograph when it does not meet these conditions. The idea that recording is fundamental to the photographic process, I will suggest, is part and parcel of a single stage view that can be traced to the inception of photography and has become orthodoxy among photographers, historians and theorists. In analytic philosophy, it has led to a mind independence, becoming a defining feature of photographs. A single stage view supposes that a photographic image is generated during the period when a camera exposes a photosensitive surface to light. This is the view of photography that I will challenge here. I'll propose an alternative multi-stage account. In the terms of my alternative account, exposure of a photosensitive surface to light is a necessary first stage in the production of a photographic image, but not by itself sufficient. Subsequent process stages are necessary before a photographic image is produced. I shall argue that, as the single stage view of the photographic process, and the view that photography is essentially a recording medium are so closely entangled, once the former is rejected, the motivations for the latter are removed. The claim that photography produces mind-independent images is undermined, and the ground is cleared to accommodate an expanded range of photographic pictures. I'll proceed as follows. 
In section two, I'll spell out the single stage view and explain its appeal. And I'll also explain the alternative multi-stage view. In section three, I'll explain how the single stage view motivates the idea that photography is fundamentally a recording medium. And consequently, the idea that photographs are by definition mind independent images. In section four, I seek assistance from John Corvicki's work on recording and representation, particularly his account of witless photographic recording. I suggest that the model offered by the single stage account of an all in one recording reproduction event is a myth. In section five, I'll use the multi stage account to show that alongside witless records, photography can produce witty depictive images, and both types have equal claim to be photographs. So starting section two, single and multi-stage accounts of photography share a common starting point before they diverge. The preliminary step in any photographic process is to arrange an array of light. Conventional photographic images begin with light that is channeled through an aperture into a dark chamber, a camera obscura. Light arriving at the aperture has been emitted by or reflected from surrounding objects. And inside the camera, light is directed onto a surface to form an array of dark and bright areas of intensity. Lenses and filters can sharply focus the diffuse array to produce an optical light image. So if any of you have visited Edinburgh, you can stand inside the camera obscura in Edinburgh and look at the camera obscura image that shows you a view of the outside world. And what I'm screening for you here is the uh, a camera obscura in effect inside a Hasselblad camera. So when you look through the viewfinder, you can see the optical light image that's formed inside the camera um, before uh, creating an exposure. So I, I want to show you this because it's such an appealing and, and enticing um, curiosity. This is an entrancing object and it's the object that inspired and obsessed the pioneers of photography. The optical light image is a visual image with size, shape and location on a surface. It consists of highly detailed, differentiated areas of colour and contrasting tones. It reacts to real-time changes in the scene. So if you were actually looking through the viewfinder of the Hasselblad camera, you'd be seeing the clouds moving and shadows passing across the landscape um, as it changes in real time. So it can be dynamic or if it's uh, facing a static scene, it can appear static. But above all, the light image is ephemeral. The view inside a camera obscura is at the same time a view of the outside world. It's selected, reflected, inverted, scaled, flattened. Clouds move, shadows deepen, and at some point this captivating light image must disappear. But the pioneers of photography decided that they would compel the light image to remain. They wanted to arrest it, seize it, fix it, preserve it. However, they were not content to trace a reproduction of the light image by hand. You could imagine attempting to produce a hand-created reproduction of a light image in this way. It's possible to reproduce it that way. But they wanted to record the image by making it autonomously reproduce itself. Tolbert described his invention as fixing upon paper the image formed by the camera obscura, or rather, I should say, causing it to fix itself. A partnership agreement signed by Niepce and Daguerre attributed to Niepce the discovery of a new method 
consisting in the spontaneous reproduction of the images of nature received in a camera obscura. And Hippolyte Gaucherard reported, this is in 1839, that Monsieur de Guerre has discovered a method to fix the images that are represented at the back of a camera obscura, so that these images are not the temporary reflection of the object, but their fixed and durable impress which may be removed from the presence of those objects, like a picture or engraving. And I want to draw your attention to the word impress, the idea that it's forming an impression here, because I'll be coming back to that point. These and many similar descriptions of the photographic process show the emergence of what I'm calling the single stage view of photography. I'll first outline that view and afterwards say more about recording and reproduction. When an optical light image has formed, it is not a photographic image. A necessary step for generating a photographic image is to expose the light image to a photosensitive surface. Single and multi-stage accounts of photography diverge in how they characterise the process stages that lie between the light image and the photographic image. Both except that there are numerous sequential tasks required in the overall process. So single and multi is not an indication of some particular number of tasks that get performed um, technically. Instead, the labels are different answers to the question, within what stage or stages of the production process does a photographic image come into existence? A single stage account applies to any account that is committed implicitly or explicitly to answering that a photographic image is created during the period in which the photosensitive surface is exposed to light. We think of this ordinarily just as the exposure of the camera. Single stage accounts recognize that secondary stages may be necessary to reveal or display or modify the photographic image, but they suppose that these tasks come after the image has already been created. So reporting on the daguerreotype method, one 19th century author explained that during exposure, the light image becomes perfectly imprinted on a photosensitized metal plate. At the end of the exposure time, there is as yet no visible image, yet the image has already been affixed to the plate invisibly. All that remains is to make the invisible image visible by applying mercury fumes. This remains the template the 21st century single stage accounts of photography, which are committed to the notion that the photographic image exists once the photosensitive surface has been exposed to light from the scene. An image created during exposure exists as an invisible latent image on undeveloped film or as a digital file before it is subsequently developed, printed, screened, etc. The multi stage account does not simply start with the single stage view and add another stage. Sorry, I'll go through these. So these are the single stage accounts. The multi-stage account does not simply start with the single stage view and add another stage. Rather, it reconceives how to think about the relationship between two process stages and offers a new way to understand photographic images. A multi-stage account denies that a photographic image comes into existence during the exposure stage. It acknowledges that the exposure of light to a photosensitive surface is a distinctive causal phenomenon, and I'm calling this the photographic event. But this event is not the production of a photographic image. It's on the multi-stage account. 
During the photographic event, there is causal registration of light that forms the optical light image. This is causal registration of the light, not causal registration of the image. The image does not cause any material changes in the photosensitive surface. It's only light that's causing material changes. So in photochemical technology, silver halide emulsion coating the surface forms micro specks of metal by reacting to varying intensities of light distributed across a surface. Material changes in the emulsion tally up the quantity of light during the photographic event. <clears throat> And the result is a register of the changes. So when the photographic event ends, only a photographic register exists. And that's what I'm saying uh, that you can see in front of you is indicated that at the end of the photographic event, a register has been produced, but no photographic image yet exists. So no image yet exists, visible or invisible. To create a photographic image, another stage is necessary. The photographic register must undergo chemical treatments to render a stable visual image. Image rendering, whether that be the application of fumes of mercury or other uh, processes, does not reveal an already existing image. Instead, it uses a photographic register to bring a visual image into being. And some features of the visual image will be determined by the image rendering process. After the stages of registration and rendering are complete, a photographic, photographic image then exists. Photoelectrical processes, likewise, do not produce an image during exposure. The pixels of an electronic sensor tally up the light they receive as electrical charge and produce a digital file. A software program is required to render a visual image from a digital register. If the step from light registration to image rendering is automated, to occur in a fraction of a second, production of the photographic image can seem simultaneous with the exposure time, creating the impression of a single stage account. But this step in the process can be interrupted, and it's straightforward to acknowledge, in line with the multi-stage account, that a digital file is not a photographic image. And we wouldn't imagine, for example, that an invisible image was stored on the electronic sensor. Single and multi-stage views each seek to accommodate photochemical and photoelectrical production processes and all varieties of photographic technology, from the production of heliographs and color types through to Polaroids and digital photography. The single stage view, as we've seen, originated in early photochemical photography, although it's retained its influ influence in the digital era, even though the underlying idea is no longer a perfect fit. The multi-stage account has emerged in an era of photoelectrical photography, where it carries most plausibility, but it then faces a challenge to overturn the orthodox account of photochemical processes. So it might be tempting to classify photochemical photography as single stage and photoelectrical photography as multi-stage, but that's not going to be accurate. I'm arguing that the multi-stage account is correct for both. The single stage view is a deep misconception of photography. It's not an alternative type of photography. The arrival of digital photography doesn't spell the end of single stage orthodoxy. And that's because the view has had an influential legacy. During its period of unchallenged dominance, the single stage view installed a normative principle that has been used to define photographs. The principle that a pure photograph, a strictly defined, ideal or authentic photograph, 
is necessarily a visual image that has acquired its properties mind independently. To fully understand mind independence in the legacy of the single stage view, it will help to turn to the idea that photography is fundamentally a recording medium. Reproductions need not be the product of a recording process. As I say, you could imagine, um, given the, the image in front of you, could you imagine producing a reproduction of that image by hand, if, if you are talented with the paintbrush. Um, it's possible to produce reproductions by hand, guided by conscious control. But the key attraction of photographic reproduction is the prospect of a causal recording process that does not rely on conscious control. So you don't have to be particularly talented to um, take a, a photograph of that image and produce a reproduction that way. A footprint in the snow reproduces the outline shape of a boot through a causal re recording process. When the boot shape is causally imprinted in the snow, it leaves behind a reproduction of that shape. The physical imprint is, at one and the same time, a recording of the shape and also a reproduction of the shape. And this is a mind-independent, all-in-one model of causal recording. The single-stage view makes the error of using impression as a model to explain the production of a photographic image. And I'll refer you back to that um, mention of the word impress by Gaucherard earlier. In photochemical technology, recording and reproduction have been conceived of as an all-in-one process. The camera obscura image is recorded in the photosensitive surface, and the photographic image is none other than a reproduction of the camera obscura image. This combination of ideas explains why photography appears to be fundamentally a recording medium. Reports of the invention of photographic processes repeatedly feature two interrelated ideas. The first idea is that the camera obscura image reproduces itself. The second is that the photographic image has created itself autonomously. And these two ideas fit together. So it's very widespread. If you look through the, the literature um, by the pioneers of photography from all sorts of directions, these two themes recur over and over again. And what you'll notice is that these two ideas fit together. The ephemeral camera obscura image reproduces itself by forming a stable photographic image. That's how it reproduces itself, it's thought. And put it the other way around, the photographic image autonomously creates itself in the action of a camera obscura image spontaneously reproducing itself. So this fit between the two ideas, in effect, means that the reproduction of a camera obscura image and the production of a photographic image are being treated as two descriptions of a single event. That's the all-in-one um, recording reproduction idea. But this is the idea that I'm challenging. This is what you find in the literature, but I'm wanting to deny that, that, that everything is, a, is as it seems here. Early accounts make it clear that the photographic image is considered to be a reproduction of the light image. But before long, typical accounts begin to gloss over the intermediary role of the light image and treat the photographic image instead as a reproduction of the scene before the camera. Talbot, for example, claimed that Laycock Abbey was the first building in history to have drawn its own picture. According to Rudolf Arnheim, the fundamental peculiarity of the photographic medium 
is the fact that the physical objects themselves print their image by means of the optical and chemical action of light. And Rob Hopkins has observed that the idea of allowing the world to form its own image by a process of imprinting is central to photography's self-conception. So from this direction, you're getting the idea that the world is imprinting itself in a photographic um, surface. But if you turn the idea around, the same idea around, you find the everyday notion that photography is recording the appearance of the world in front of the camera. And that's a, a pretty common way of thinking about what's happening when you lift up a camera and point it at the world. But notice that the original idea that photography repro reproduces a light image would seem alien to most people. This idea of the um, imprinting of the world is the conception of recording that lies behind many philosophical discussions of photography. The idea that photographs are records of the photograph scene is commonly invoked to draw a fundamental distinction between photographic and non-photographic images, most evidently in discussions about the epistemic value of photography, but also found in aesthetic debate. When Roger Scruton constructs a contrast between the logical ideals of painting and photography, he claims that the ideal photograph has a merely causal relation to its subject, so it is a record of how an actual object looked. Greg Curry claims that a camera records what is in front of it, not what the photographer thinks is in front of it. The idea that fundamentally a, photo a photograph is a record that reproduces features of the photograph scene is aligned with theories that make mind-independent counterfactual dependence a defining characteristic of photographs. A central claim is that determinate features of photographs are counterfactually dependent on determinate features of the scene because those properties were transferred via a mind-independent production process. Versions of this idea feature in work by Curry on visible traces, Hopkins on accuracy, Scruton on aesthetic skepticism, Walton on transparency, and Walden on objectivity. Photographic images that fall short of this threshold are not considered photographs in a full sense, or they only partially exhibit the qualities of transparency, objectivity, accuracy, that a full exemplar would possess. Theories with a commitment to mind independence have collectively established a tradition that carries normative force. Any genuine photograph, a photograph strictly defined, is necessarily a mind independent record of a photographed scene. So the pioneers of photography viewed an all-in-one recording reproduction event as the fundamental basis for the photographic process. This established the single stage view as orthodoxy. Photographic recording was considered an entirely causal process that bypassed the conscious control of the photographer. On this view, a photographic image is necessarily autonomous rather than authored. And the idea has evolved into the normative principle that mind independence must be specified in any adequate definition of a photograph. The idea that photography is fundamentally a recording medium comes as a package with this normative constraint on how photographs are to be defined. Not for long. A photographic image is at times called a recording, a reproduction, a record, a representation. There are lots of different claims in the literature um, that I've covered. Um, and it's sometimes 
uh, it's, it's difficult to tell the difference between these claims as though the words are interchangeable, but they're certainly not equivalent terms. Uh, to restore a clear view, I'm turning to the work of John Corvicki, who distinguishes recordings from representations and specifies defining characteristics of recordings. So Corvicki says that while representations have an intentional character, recordings are relational. The relation between a recording and what it records is witless, and it allows playback. Witless means that the process is causal, and as long as everything is working properly, no wits are required. Wits might be prerequisite for making such machines, so nobody is denying that um, cameras are uh, designed and built um, using human <clears throat> decision-making processes and beliefs and so on. But this is the claim that wits might be prerequisite to making such machines, but recording processes when they're operational don't require those wits. Playback is a witsless process whereby that which is recorded can be reproduced. So to give you some more details of Kulvicki's account, uh, because it's particularly helpful. Although an object or an image is commonly called a recording, a recording is a relation, not a particular kind of object. A recording is a state of affairs that relates the event it records to a reproduction of that event. Specifically, a recording supports the reproduction of an abstract pattern. It relates one instance of a pattern to another instance of the same pattern. So while Descartes might be the source of a recording, of course he uh, lived before photographs, but I think that's the, that's the point. Um, so Descartes might be the source of a recording, but it's not possible to produce, to record Descartes. And that's because he is a unique object and he cannot be reproduced. We're ignoring Star Trek examples for the time being. It is, however, possible to record a pattern of light and dark caused by an object or scene and then to reproduce that pattern. So a photograph of Descartes would reproduce the pattern of light and dark that was recorded when he stood before the camera. Colvicki discusses the distinction between recording and representation. So having put in place his account of recording, he then uh, can explain how representation builds on recording in the case of photography. The visible pattern witlessly reproduced by photographic recording process may be taken up as the intentional content of a representation. And I take it that a photographic portrait of Descartes would be an example of that. But witless recordings can be independent of representation. So, and this is my example, not, uh, not John's, but if Descartes was caught by a speed camera, that would be a witless recording independent of representation. And many representations have only intentional content without any recorded content. So the existing painted portrait of Descartes would be an example of that. Kulvicki does not suppose that photographs are fundamentally representational. Instead, he has a functional account that explains how some, but not all photographs, acquire intentional content and serve as representations. However, I think it's implicit in his account that every photograph is the product of a recording process. This would seem to endorse the view that photography is fundamentally a recording medium, the view that I've been challenging. But his position need not point to this conclusion, as it can be extended to support a functional multi-stage account. 
Kulvicki acknowledges two types of recording, an all-in-one process where the recording is already a reproduction and a process where reproduction is one step away from the recording. So he characterizes digital photography as an example of the latter because you have to, although the digital file is a recording, it's not also a playback. It has to be put through a second stage before it plays back the visible pattern. So he thinks that digital photography is an example of reproduction that's one step away from the recording. But, and I think he should also say the same about photochemical photography. However, at the moment, he has used the daguerreotype as a paradigm of all-in-one recording reproduction. So he says that in daguerreotypes, a pattern burned into a sheet of silver records a pattern of light and dark and also serves as a playback of that pattern because it is the pattern of light and dark that was recorded. Just look and you see reproduced the pattern that caused it. An all-in-one recording reproduction account of daguerreotypes would be correct if the single stage account of photography were true, but it's not. Like digital images, daguerreotypes are products of a multi-stage process. The photographic image is not a reproduction that was created when recording occurred, as after the photographic event, no image is visible. The image that serves as a visible playback of the recording is only created thanks to a contingent image rendering process. The significance of this step was not apparent in reports by Daguerre, Talbot and others, who believed that an invisible latent image and the visible patent image were one and the same image. Talbot misleadingly claimed that during the image rendering stage, an invisible latent image developed itself by a spontaneous action. And that would certainly count as a witless playback of a recording, but it's not proof of an all-in-one recording reproduction. So in the next section, I'm going to now use the multi-stage account to argue that photography is only functionally a recording medium, just as it is functionally rather than fundamentally a represent representing medium. I'll extend Kulbicki's account to argue that many photographic images are witless reproductions from recordings, as he suggests, but not all. Photography properly includes images that are witty as well as those that are witless. According to the multi-stage account, recording and reproduction are not all in one within the exposure stage. So it's a denial of that impression or imprinting model. The photographic image does not generate itself autonomously when a photosensitive surface is exposed to light. Instead, registration of light takes place during the photographic event. And once an image is rendered from the register, the photographic image can in some cases be considered a recorded reproduction of the light image. But whether it is or is not a record is an open question. It will be settled by facts about how the register was produced and how it was used to render the photographic image. If the process has been set up in an appropriate way and end-to-end -end stages of the process are fully witless, the result is a record. Otherwise, it is not. Nothing in photography makes it fundamentally the case that photographic images are records. It is only a contingent, functionally determined matter. A photographic image is a photographic record when the image has been reproduced by witless light registration and 
witless image rendering. Neither process can be correctly described as mind independent, although following Kulvicki for a recording or playback process to be witless, a system that bypasses human intervention is necessary. The single stage view can assume that so long as everything during the exposure stage is witless, the production of the photographic image is fundamentally witless. That's all it needs to suppose. Whereas the multi-stage view recognizes that a witless photographic event does not determine that the photographic image is a witless playback or not. Even if the first stage is witless, there are two possibilities. There may be a witless second stage, in which case the photographic image is an entirely witless playback, or the photographer may intervene in the second stage, in which case the photographic image is not an entirely witless playback. I will introduce the term witty to characterize photographic process stages that are not entirely witless. So I need to offer some further um, clarification or definition here. A recording is a relation between two instances of a pattern. And necessarily, this is, this is um, again, following Kulvicki's account, necessarily it must support a witless playback, a reproduction of the recorded pattern. Otherwise, it is not a recording. What I'm claiming is that registration is a causal relation between a distribution of light and the effects caused by that light. It's not a relation between instances of a pattern. A register can support witless playback and thereby serve functionally as a recording for a reproduction. But a register can also be used to create an image that is not a witless playback. It is a register in both cases, but it is only a recording in the witless case. It's understandable that photography has prioritized the recording function and privileged those cases where technology has been successfully designed to fulfill that function. Norms and standards have been established to ensure success at every process stage. You only need to think about a speed camera as an example there. But the undesirable legacy of single stage orthodoxy is that failure to live up to the norms of being a recording has been treated as failure to live up to the norms of being a photograph. The multi-stage account does not support the normative principle that mind independence must define the paradigm case of a photographic image. Instead, it recognizes four schematic possibilities. Witless registration followed by witless rendering, witless registration followed by witty rendering, witty registration followed by witless rendering, and witty registration followed by witty rendering. The first of these four is an entirely witless, you know, end-to-end, -end, entirely witless um, production process. The other three are witty in various ways, but the outcomes of all four modes of productions count equally and fully as photographic images. Hence, it would be a mistake to insist that mind independence is a defining feature of a photographic image. And I'm going to use a witty self-portrait by Vincent Duhal to illustrate the various modes of production. So I shall just share with you to begin with this witty self-portrait. <clears throat> Although the first uh, example I'm going to show you uh, is a, a, a process step before we arrive at this image. So let's go back a step in the production of this image. Let's take an example of witless registration followed by witless rendering. So Duelt sat in front of a camera 
light reflecting from his face was focused to form an optical light image and a photographic event occurred. Light arriving at the photosensitive film surface caused material changes in the emulsion. When the photographic event ended, the register, in my terms, consisting of material changes was removed from the camera. Now the register at this stage is not itself a record, a reproduction or a representation in its own right. Everything depends on what happens next. So the register was immersed in developing fluid, which caused microscopic catalysts to grow into large grains of silver and produce a visible image. And I, I imagine you'll be thinking at the moment that it's producing an image of the kind that we just saw. But I want you to hold that thought because we're, we're talking about a slightly different photographic process stage. The photographic image was chemically fixed to halt the rendering process and the resultant negative is a photographic record. So what I've just described is the production of a photographic negative. It's not what you think of as the ordinary case of a positive print. Um, but the resultant negative is an instance of a pattern that was witlessly recorded, then reproduced by witless playback. However, you know, so it, it, is, a, it is a photographic record, in other words. Photochemical methods with a negative positive process require two photographic events and two image rendering steps. The first register produced in the camera is, is rendered into a negative photographic image. That's what I've just described as witless registration followed by witless rendering. However, the negative produced uh, during this process can now be used in the darkroom to stage a second photographic event. And that's what I want to turn to. So I haven't given you uh, a visual example of what the negative looks like, um, but we have a, an example for the next case. So we turn now to witless registration followed by witty rendering. Inside a darkroom, the negative image that we just heard described produced was placed in an enlarger. A second optical light image was formed and a second photographic event occurred. The, distribution, the quantity and distribution of light shining through the negative was registered by causal changes in a sheet of photosensitive paper. The production of this register was also a witless process, hence it fulfills the first part of this description. So that darkroom process um, of enlargement on a sheet of photosensitive paper is, is a witless registration. Um, now, it would have been possible to immerse that register in developing fluid and produce a visible image in a pretty standard, perhaps even automated um, production process. But that's not what has happened in um, this case of this self-portrait. Instead of um, witlessly rendering the image, Dualt chose not to render the image using a witless method. Instead, he selectively finger-painted developing fluid over the surface of the register, layered in some places and large gaps untouched elsewhere. If obviously you can see the, the effect of the overall image, but if I actually go into a close-up and possibly even further, you can see the details of the, the contouring lines and the, vis the, the visible effects that are created by that layering process of the developing fluid. And this is an example of a witty image rendering in every sense of the word. 
The result that you can see here is not a witless reproduction of a recorded pattern. It's a photographic picture. A restrictive definition of photography, which includes mind independence as a normative condition of an image counting as a photograph, must say that this self-portrait is not a photograph. Some theories would classify it as a drawing or a painting. The multi-stage view can claim that this is categorically a photographic image without claiming that it is a record of the photographed scene. So it's not a playback of a, uh, a pattern that was recorded during um, the photographic event. This is not a, a playback of that pattern. It, it, uh, it is a picture. So let's look at witty registration followed by witless rendering. A photographic picture can be the product of witless light registration combined with witty image rendering. That's what I tried to show you with the previous example. But witty light registration is also possible. It's commonly supposed that techniques such as dodging and burning are interventions at the image rendering stage of photographic production. They're considered techniques for post-production, manipulation or enhancement of an image. So very often you'll hear people say that an image has had a lot of dodging and burning. It suggests that the, um, that the pure photograph has been manipulated and um, uh, intentionally um, tampered with, enhanced in different ways. But that impression is another misconception caused by the single stage view. In fact, dodging and burning take place during the occurrence of a photographic event. So one of the benefits of the multi-stage view is it draws attention to the idea that there's more than one photographic event taking place in the production process here. Enlargement printing requires light to be projected through the negative and focused to form an optical light image. The negative provides a static scene, unlike the dynamic scene in front of a camera. So in the example of the, looking through the Hasselblad viewfinder, the dynamic scene in front of the camera had moving clouds and so on. If you were to put a negative um, in the enlarger, the clouds in the negative, or at least the, the pattern, um, wouldn't move. It would be static. It would create a static light image. But the optical light image is still temporally active. And that means it's causally responsive to changing light conditions. So imagine you've shone light through the enlarger and created an optical light image in the dark room. Dodging is a technique for reducing the amount of light arriving at specific areas of the photosensitive surface. Uh, it's usually created by having a little uh, shaped area on, on a stick moved around during the um, exposure time. And burning is a technique to increase the relative amount of light received in a selective area. So again, a cutout silhouette will screen most of the light arriving on the photosensitive surface and just allow extra light to arrive in one specific area. These commonly used techniques allow the photographer to consciously control how light is registered and give the photographic register intentionally determined features. So notice what I'm claiming here is I'm not saying it gives the photographic image intentionally. Um, determined features. It's the register that is acquiring these intentionally determined features. A photographic event, I claim, can be a witty process. It is not necessarily a witless process. 
I've said that a witty photographic event can be followed by witless image rendering, because after dodging and burning, say you've carried out all this work in the darkroom to produce an intentionally determined register, you can now put that register through a witless image rendering process. You can put it through a standardized, possibly automated development process that would lack witty intervention by the photographer. But the overall product would still count as witty because the register had been produced through a witty process. So final uh, example. So I've claimed that a photographic event occurring in a dark room can be witty as well as witless. And this is the much bigger claim that follows from that. The same is true for all photographic events. Uh, in other words, whether in a dark room or not, and whether photochemical or photoelectrical. It, it isn't just a matter of producing chemical darkroom photography that produces this effect. The formation of an optical light image through judicious positioning of a camera and adjustment of settings and controlled management of the registration of light can be the basis of a photographic event that is either witty or witless followed by image rendering of either kind. So an excellent example of this, and some of you I hope may already be thinking of this, is light drawing. So um, a, a partnership between Jean Millet and Pablo Picasso um, produced a series of images um, that I think are a great example of witty light registration outside the dark room. So an image of this kind is produced the, the room is initially in darkness, so Picasso is standing in darkness, and um, Millie uh, just illuminates Picasso through a single flash of the, uh, the flash gun, and then the light goes off again, and it remains in darkness. And then Picasso uh, draws, using a, a torch, uh, sketches a drawing in the air, and Millie has left the camera on a long exposure. So for the period um, of the exposure the or the photographic event, as I would call it, um, the tracing of the light in against a background of darkness um, creates a register um, that when, uh, when rendered into an image gives us this particular pattern. Um, and I would say that this is an example of dodging and burning outside the darkroom. Um, so but I'm, I'm suggesting that um, the control of light can control whether it's witty or witless. Now, being entirely witness, wit, uh, sorry, <laughs> witless is an all or nothing matter. But being witty comes in degrees. Heated discussions must inevitably continue about how far it is possible for a photographer to make interventions that are salient in the final image. The multi-stage view does not settle that matter. It simply invites such discussions to take place more freely. Although photographers are often keen to let the image speak for itself, the multi-stage view shows that the testimony of photographers is invaluable for ascertaining whether or to what extent the production of an image was witty or witless in both the registration and rendering stages. So in other words, I'm going against the idea that you should just be able to um, judge whether something is strictly a record or not based entirely on what you can see in the visual, visual image. This is not only true for depictive portraits, but also speed camera records, which is why if an image is going to go to court and stand as forensic evidence for an event, there has to be a corresponding account 
um, of, of sworn testimony that accounts for how that image has been produced and stored and uh, passed on. Most importantly, it extends to every conceivable use of photography, social, artistic, scientific, forensic, or reportage. In arguing for a functional account of photography, I'm in good company with a diverse range of functional approaches offered by others, but there are significant areas of disagreement, and I think there, this is just the starting point for further discussion. For example, Hopkins argues, Rob Hopkins argues, that photographs support factive pictorial experience because they're necessarily accurate. But he specifically does not claim that photographs are fundamentally accurate. Instead, he claims that properly functioning photography produces photographs that support an experience of accurate seeing in. This position lies in the functional camp rather than the fundamental camp, but it is significant that he appeals to an idealised conception of the norms that set the functional standard. These idealised norms are descended from the orthodox expectation that photographs should be defined as mind independent. And elsewhere, Hopkins acknowledges that his claims are limited to the category of authentic photographs that fit the traditional self-image of photography as an imprinting process. If the multi-stage account of photography is correct, no photography genuinely fits the self-image of all-in-one imprinting. And photographic images do not have to meet this standard to be considered authentic. That said, if the norms that set the functional standard can be appropriately explained, it should still be possible to argue that some photographs are sufficiently accurate to support factive pictorial experience. And I think the same will prove to be true for reliability, objectivity, credibility, and other qualities that have explained why photography is highly valued as a recording medium. But addressing the legacy of the single stage view clears the way for better understanding how photography functions as a recording medium and better understanding when it does not. So I'll just finish with <clears throat> some final uh, conclusions. I claimed at the outset that it's orthodoxy that photography is fundamentally a recording medium, and there is truth in that generalization. However, under cross-examination, few, if any, would commit to a full-blooded version of that view. Perhaps no one would insist that without exception, every product of the photographic process is necessarily a record of the photograph scene. But that doesn't mean I've targeted a straw man. Instead, I take myself to have revealed a man made of straw. My aim has been to expose significant misconceptions that arise if photographic recording is treated as the paradigm for defining a photograph. The truth, in my initial generalization, is the widely held assumption that only those photographic images that are records count as photographs. I've argued that a multi-stage functional account of photography can acknowledge the importance of photographic records without privileging that category over photographic images that are not records of a photograph scene. The term photograph, often contracted to photo, is a generic term that's been used to refer to various objects that display the visible effects of being marked by light. It might seem that photograph is a useful term to apply to a wide category of items produced by different technologies covering a range of different applications. But on the contrary, in analytic philosophy of photography and beyond, photograph is an unhelpful term that conflates several separate process stages, obscures different technological functions and practical techniques. Most significantly, it has, involved, that it has evolved into a term with normative force 
that treats a narrow range of cases as a restrictive standard. This has led to, oh, sorry, and uh, by treating contingent functional factors as necessary fundamental conditions. This has led to epistemic dogmatism and aesthetic skepticism. Photograph carries an inheritance of mythical claims about a magical mechanical process. And the photo in the machine is quite literally black box thinking, recording and reproduction that supposedly takes place in an all-in-one process inside the camera obscura. To understand how photography functions as a recording medium, it is necessary to expose what actually goes on inside and outside the black box, to recognise different roles played by the optical light image, the photographic register, the photographic image and the photographic picture. Only then is it possible to develop a full picture of the witty and witless capacities of the photographer. Thank you.